If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The debate about immigration is as old as the process of immigration itself. Throughout the later Middle Ages, people were considering the implications of immigration, debating sometimes in quite heated fashion the pros and cons of it. That was Mark Ormrod discussing how immigrants were received in medieval England. We're all English, we're all in this together, and we're all fighting against the Vikings. And so that's really a moment, I think, when you could say that England becomes England. And that was Robin Fleming talking about the emergence of a sense of Englishness. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our final podcast of March 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For the past three years, 
a group of historians have been analysing medieval records to research the history of immigration into England in the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries. The project has recently come to an end and has produced, among other things, a searchable database of over 60,000 immigrants who arrived in England in this period. The manager of the project is Professor Mark Ormrod, a historian at the University of York. And I spoke to him a couple of weeks back to find out what the project team have discovered. You've now come almost to the end of, of this project. What would you say have been your main findings so far? Well, I think the England's Immigrants Database has demonstrated a number of really important things about the kind of long history of immigration to this country uh, over the medieval period and indeed by inference beyond, that, it, that immigration was a kind of constant in our history and that the debate about immigration is actually as long and as old as immigration itself. So that it's very easy for us in modern society to consider that this is a crucial issue for us now, but in fact it has very often come up in, in our past uh, as a matter of major public concern uh, as well. So the wonderful thing about studying the late Middle Ages particularly is that one can get beyond the kind of broad narratives and the uh, generalizations that uh, that are made both by contemporaries and historians and actually dig down to the lives of the real people and to examine the names, the occupations, the places of residence, the nationalities, the careers, the experiences of thousands of people who made their way into England in the era of the Hundred Years' War, the Black Death and the Wars of the Roses. So you've obviously got quite a lot of detail now about some of these people's lives. And first of all, where, where were they coming from? Well, the interesting thing is that when the English state became quite uh, involved in regulating immigration to the country uh, in the course of the 14th and 15th centuries, what really counted for it in terms of actually making its records is that these people had simply been born abroad. That was its definition, really, of people who had been born outside England. So it was less concerned about attaching specific political nationalities to them than making that basic differentiation between people born in England and people born outside. So many of the people that, that we're studying, we can only usually kind of infer from their names what parts of the world they may have come from. But in many cases, we do actually have a national designation given to them. Large numbers of people coming in from the then English colony of Ireland and from the then separate and often hostile kingdom of Scotland the largest number of all apparently coming in from the various regions of France, some of which in this period, of course, were actually ruled over by the English crown, an important point to remember, I think, in terms of nationality. And then lots of people from the low countries in northern Germany, smaller numbers from the Mediterranean countries, from the Spanish kingdoms of the period, from Italy, uh, from Greece. And then we have some precious information as well about people from further field as well, especially from an area that the medieval imagination called Ind, I-N-D-E, Ind, which really means anywhere from the, the Middle East through the Indian subcontinent. 
You mentioned before that some of these Scottish immigrants were coming from a country that England was, was often hostile to, and I suppose that would apply to France as well. Did England have any way of keeping out so-called undesirable immigrants? Well, there was a keen idea that started up in the 13th and 14th centuries that when England was at war with uh, other other hostile nations around around Europe, that something needed to be done in a way to kind of control the freedom of movement of people from those areas coming into England and residing within England. So from time to time, for example, during the Hundred Years' War in the 14th century, we get the English Parliament asking that hostile foreigners be expelled from the realm. And they're usually there referring to the French. But we must remember that the Scots were, of course, very often in alliance with the French in this period against England, so that the Scots would be included in this as well. So kind of high-level discussion about this idea of actually detaining or indeed expelling people from hostile foreign nations. The interesting thing is that beyond that high-level rhetoric, what the central government and local governments often then did was try to ameliorate, to soften that process and to make lots of exceptions for people who were regarded as trustworthy, even though they had been born abroad and the countries they came from were at war with England, they could be regarded as trustworthy residents of the realm and they ought to be able to remain and be protected. So there's an interesting kind of relationship there between that top level rhetoric of expulsion and exclusion and the lower level practice of uh, assimilation and acceptance. So in terms of the English authorities at a local and national level, were they broadly welcoming of immigration? It certainly sounds like from what you're saying that, that parts of, of the authorities would have been. So the period that we've studied is fascinating in respect of English attitudes towards uh, immigrants. We are looking at the period when the Black Death hit England in the middle of the 14th century and reduced the population by anything up to about a half. The population of England then remained extremely small and very static for at least a century after the middle of the, of the 14th century and then began gradually to grow again in the late 15th century. England needed workers. The economy, both the agricultural economy and the manufacturing economy actually required additional pairs of hands in order to be able to keep that economy going. And therefore, there is, through the later 14th and on into the 15th centuries, a kind of active engagement with foreigners to draw them into England. They are attracted by higher wage rates, better working conditions and so on. And they're also sometimes actively pursued by governments who are anxious to produce certain skills for the English economy. Flemish weavers are a classic case in point here. Then what you see is that as the population begins to recover, we begin to get that kind of discourse going about English jobs for English blokes, and it is usually blokes actually, um, and a growing sensitivity around the idea as to whether foreigners should actually be given equivalence of rights in the job market in England. So what we're seeing here is a very, very close and sensitive relationship between the size of the population, the size of the economy, and the size of the phenomenon of immigration. So you mentioned just now that most of the migrants or the working was done by men. Did many 
Do many women and children also migrate to England or would it be mainly single men? So during the 14th and 15th centuries, one of the consequences of the shortage of labour in the English economy was that many women both English-born and foreign, were drawn into the English economy. And one of the fascinating things about our database is the remarkably high number of women who appear in there. Not just, one should stress, as the wives of immigrants, kind of coming in on the coattails of their husbands, but actually coming into England in their own right as single women to enter into the agricultural workforce. There are plenty of examples of women uh, working as agricultural labourers, large numbers of Scottish women, for example, working in agriculture in in the northern parts of England in this period. Also, as very, very crucial Uh, workers within the woolen industry and the textile industry. So lots of spinners coming in from various parts of the British Isles and the the continent. Um, And women also setting up their own households and their own businesses. For example, a significant number of women running brewing businesses in England in the later Middle Ages. So here we can see how women are playing an active part in that economy in their own right. And that women from continental Europe are making their own decisions about packing their bags and moving to England in search of work. We've talked quite a lot about the economic side of things, but do we know to what extent the immigrants assimilated with the English population in a cultural and social level? So one of the key questions, of course, when we're looking at the phenomenon of immigration is to consider the degree to which foreigners coming into England at any period in history were treated as a kind of alien species and sort of set aside and apart, ghettoized, if you like, or whether they were actually welcomed in and rapidly assimilated. Now, when we're trying to look for direct evidence about those kind of cultural concerns, it is, of course, agonizingly difficult in distant historical times actually to find too much of this material. But we can build very persuasive models, I think, of how this this actually happened. And what we can say is that in some of the large towns there was a certain kind of clustering of people from particular parts of Europe, such that across generations, they could kind of sustain a sense of connection within their own community there and with their donor community back home. So we can think, for example, about the Greek or the German community in London in the 15th century and about other perhaps rather more remarkable and understudied groups like um, the groups of Icelanders, for example, that we find regularly in places like Coventry and Nottingham. In many of the towns of England, in other words, we've got the sense that there is a kind of community that is providing a pull for people from the donor communities outside England. But the major phenomenon, the major finding really of our database and of our research project is that the foreign population of England did not cluster in certain large towns around the country, but actually spread itself out over the countryside. And the norm in many ways is to find a single or a few handful of foreigners recorded in 
often quite isolated villages and hamlets all around the country. In the south of England, in Midland England, and in the north of England, it's the same kind of pattern that we observe there. And the question clearly then arises as to the degree to which these people cut off both from their homeland and indeed from other people from those places who were also resident in England could feasibly actually retain their sense of being foreign and were in fact rapidly assimilated into the local population and the local culture. In an article that you've written for our current issue of the magazine, you focus specifically on migrants from within the British Isles. Now, was their treatment by the local population different from that of the other immigrants? So the way in which the English Crown treated people from other parts of the British Isles and from its other dependencies around Europe was a very, very complex and quite pragmatic kind of approach. The Scots were always treated as foreigners because they were the subjects of a a separate king. They had their own independence. And since Scotland and England were at war for much of the period that we are studying, uh, the Scots were emphatically always counted as being aliens. The position is much more complicated in relation to people who came from parts of the British Isles and indeed the continent of Europe that were actually dependencies of the English crown. In 1440, the English parliament decided to tax foreigners resident in England. And the crown decided, probably for very pragmatic and fiscal reasons, to treat anyone who had actually been born outside England as what we might call a fiscal alien. So people who came from Ireland, people who came from the Channel Islands, people who came from the English dependencies in northern and southwestern France were all suddenly labelled as foreigners and required to pay this foreign tax rate. And their response, not surprisingly, was to challenge this. And when they challenged it, they usually kind of got away with it. So we can see there how the crown was using labels around foreignness in a very, very pragmatic and fluid sort of way. And that the treatment of people from various parts of the British Isles and continental Europe depended not just on the politics of the moment, but on a whole range of other kind of cultural and economic considerations. In England today, there are many cultural legacies from more recent waves of immigration in terms of language, music, food. Do we still have any legacies from the medieval immigrants at all in modern England? There's a whole range of things where we can see how immigration to England in the Middle Ages affected fundamentally some of the cultural aspects of life at the time uh, and thereafter. We all know, I think, how the arrival of the Normans in England after 1066 had a fundamental effect on our language, meaning that the kind of official spoken language of England for several generations was actually French, and that when English began to become an official and written language at the end of the Middle Ages, it was in turn itself fundamentally affected by the French language that had been spoken and written in the country uh, for so long. So there's a kind of outstanding example of how a long-term linguistic legacy results from the process of immigration. 
But when we're looking at the later Middle Ages, we can see in many, many individual cases how, particularly in terms of the arts, we can see how foreigners coming into England with particular skills were able to apply their own kind of traditions and their own styles to to the cultural outputs of late medieval England. So we can see, for example, how in many parts of East Anglia or the West Country, foreign craftsmen working on the great rebuilding of English parish churches during the later Middle Ages had a material impact on those buildings in the sculptures, in the glass, in a whole range of aspects of design of these churches. And many of these things are still left to us today as kind of markers of the arrival and influence of those foreign craftspeople. The project, I believe, now is is completed and you have this online database. Could you tell us a bit more about what this database is and how it might help people researching the period? The online database, www.englandsimmigrants.com, contains full biographical information on nearly 65,000 people who were documented to have arrived in England in first generation of immigration across the later Middle Ages from 1330 to 1550. The database is fully searchable, so there are many, many different kind of functions and facets within the database that allow you to explore not just a crucial family name or a local place that you're interested in, but also to do wider and more speculative searches looking at a range of people involved in a, in a particular occupation, for example, or in regions of the country, the historic counties uh, of England or the North or whatever one is interested in. There's a series of sophisticated visualisation tools in the database as well, so that when you pull up your results with short or long lists of individuals and their names and the details about them, you can also capture that information in a more visual form by placing it all on a series of maps or by generating graphs that help to show you the trends and analyze the data for you. So it's a very, very user-friendly tool to be able quickly to grasp the, the scope and scale of immigration to England across the later Middle Ages. Finally, immigration remains a very hot topic in England and in fact Britain today. Do you think that that modern debate can be informed in any way by the research that you've done? I think it's really important to understand that the debate about immigration is as old as the process of immigration itself and that throughout the later Middle Ages, people were considering the implications of immigration, uh, debating sometimes in quite heated fashion the pros and cons of it. And at various times in the later Middle Ages, we see real kind of moments of crisis and moments of conflict when immigrants are turned into the victims of uh, certain kinds of very, very hostile rhetorics that apply to foreigners' residents within the kingdom. But what our information shows is that at a time, of course, when the reach of the state was much less strong than it is today, most of those people lived, as it were, under the radar, that they were very, very rarely captured in the sense of actually kind of understood to be present and identified as foreigners, either by local or by central government, that it's a much kind of freer 
picture that we have here of people moving around within Europe. And in many respects, it seems to me that the recent trends in our debate about immigration, which have actually moved towards this position of a debate about the free movement of people within the European Union, is exactly the kind of debate that was going on in England in the later Middle Ages, when there were no passports in the modern sense, where there were no particular immigration rules, where people came and went freely but when they were resident within the kingdom, were subject for various purposes to the rules and regulations that were available there. So we can see in England in the 14th and 15th centuries, I think the germs of a debate which has actually come to the fore as a result of European Union policy, even within just the last 10 years. That was Professor Mark Ormrod. And as he mentioned in the interview, you can find out more about their work and explore the database at englandsimmigrants.com. And in the interview, we also alluded to the fact that Mark has co-written a piece in our April edition on medieval immigration from within the British Isles. Well, the April issue is now on sale, and as well as Mark's piece, it also contains articles on Richard the Lionheart, Saladin, the court of Elizabeth I, and Gallipoli, among other things. You can get hold of our April edition in all good news agents and digitally. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Now sticking with the theme of migrants... Our second interview this week is with Professor Robin Fleming of Boston College. Her period of expertise is the so-called Dark Ages, when the Romans had departed Britain 
and new groups of immigrants were arriving from the Germanic lands. Professor Fleming is giving a lecture tonight, the 26th of March, at London's British Academy about migration in the 5th and 6th centuries, and I caught up with her recently to find out more. How much do we actually know about immigration at this period? Well, for the early period, we don't know very much at all. One of the problems is that as we move into the late 4th century and then into the 5th century, we don't have any written sources. And so the kinds of sources that historians depend on to figure out who's moving in and who's moving out disappear for us. And so we have two choices. We can either look at sources that were written later or in different places, or we can do what I do, which is look at material evidence. So look at evidence that's actually contemporary to the period, but it's not written evidence. What kind of material evidence are you using and what can that tell us? Well, I'm interested in a variety of material evidence. One kind of evidence that I'm interested in is the evidence of human bones. And human bones tell us a lot about migration, or they can. Uh, And there's a lot of new work being done on stable isotopes. And there are a couple of isotopes, oxygen isotopes and strontium isotopes, that actually help us determine whether people that we've dug up and have examined their isotopes have actually moved from the time they were children to the time that they're buried. So that's one kind of evidence that I'm really interested in. But the other kind is just the general material culture evidence that we find in cemeteries and on settlement sites. So things like potteries, uh, metal dress fittings and that sort of thing. There's a big debate about the arrival of the Anglo-Saxons, partly about when they arrived, but also to what extent they arrived as conquerors or more as settlers and assimilators. Have you got a view on those debates? Oh, I have many views on those debates. And one of the great things about these debates, of course, is that the evidence is um, conflicting and difficult. And so uh, what one finds is that historians argue very vehemently for one side or the other, the weaker the evidence is. So you have to realise that we do have great evidentiary problems in this period, which is why people see things so differently. But one of the things that I'll be talking about in my lecture at the British Academy is I'll be talking about women and migration, because I think one of the pictures that we have in our heads, which comes from later written evidence like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, is that when the Anglo-Saxons, and I'm using scare quotes around the term Anglo-Saxon, come over, they come as all-male warbands and they come as conquerors. But if you look at the material evidence it's clear that there's lots of women on the move as well. And so I'm interested in thinking about uh, the family groups that are coming over. But I'm also interested in thinking about people whose grandparents had been culturally Romano-British who are starting to change their culture as well and develop into something that we might think of as Anglo-Saxon. But actually, at this period, I think we can't call it Anglo-Saxon yet. The presence of lots of women migrants, does that then indicate that the people coming, they were not coming so much as invaders, they were coming more as just general immigrants? Well, I mean, that that certainly is what it looks like to me. It varies in various places. And so if you look at places like Kent and Hampshire, things look a little bit different. And there's more evidence early on for male groups and armed groups. But in other places, I think there isn't as much evidence. And if you look at the isotopic evidence, you can actually find women 
migrants in this period. So people whose isotopes suggest that they've come from someplace else. So we know they're coming. The evidence about where they're coming from is also interesting. Some of them seem to be coming from the continent or places like Scandinavia or even in the Eastern Baltic. But others of them seem to be moving from around the British Isles. So women are moving from a lot of places across this period and across Britain. And I guess that's an important point because Britain at this time is not one country. So you could be quite feasibly be an immigrant from within the British Isles and coming from another country. Right. And, you know, after uh, the Roman Empire withdraws from Britain, what is Britain and who are people living in Britain? It does seem that there are lots of people on the move within Britain itself in the 5th century. And there are lots of places that in the late 4th century had fairly large populations, things like towns, particular site type called small towns, villas, and they all lose their populations. And so those people have to go someplace. So these people are moving at the same time that there are immigrant groups coming from across the sea. So I think all of these people are moving, they're ending up living in the same communities, they're burying in the same cemeteries. And so I think what we have to stop thinking about is these kind of groups of immigrants living in these hermetically sealed ethnic communities. But there are people that are bumping up against other kinds of people and living together. You mentioned that a lot of the towns and other settlements were depopulated around this time. Do you or any other historians have any theories as to why that would have happened? Well, um, again, the, the evidence is weak, so there are all sorts of ideas about this. There are economic problems in the the late Roman period in Britain anyway, but when the Roman state withdraws, it does seem as if the economy collapses. So when that collapse takes place isn't quite sure, you know, does it take place in 400 or does it take place in 420? But once the money economy collapses and once the state, which is a very big player in the economy, is no longer there, it seems that urban communities and communities of specialist craftspeople um, can't be sustained anymore. So if um, Britain was was undergoing this this economic turmoil, what was the pull? Why were people then leaving other parts of Europe in significant numbers to come to Britain? What was attracting them? You know, that's a very good question. I mean, I I I think the, the push questions are really difficult to answer. What's pushing people out of continental Europe and deciding to come to Britain. And I think we don't know the answer to that. But I do think that if we think in very long terms, people have been coming to Britain since the, you know, they've been coming since the Neolithic. And so there were people coming in the Bronze Age, there were people coming in the Iron Age, uh, there are people coming during the Roman period. And so I think there's always been migration from across the sea. This period, it looks like there's an uptick in it. But I think there's this long continued pattern of migration that we find all the way through the late Middle Ages. And would you say there's a particular point where you can say that, okay, from this point on, England is recognisably Anglo-Saxon, whatever that might mean? Well, the the term Anglo-Saxon is a political term that's developed in the late 9th century at the court of Alfred the Great. Um, And that's uh, a time when there's a... Uh, the kings of England who are coming out of Wessex think of themselves as ethnically Saxon, but there are other parts of England that they're taking over that think of themselves as Anglian. So this term is invented as a kind of blanket term to say, we're all English, we're all in this together, and we're all fighting against the Vikings. And so that's really a moment, I think, when you could say that England becomes England. But before that, there must have been a point where the, I guess what you call the Romano-British and, and the Celtic-British start to be outnumbered. 
Number is a really interesting question here. I mean, what it does look like is it looks like a lot of people um, whose great-grandparents had been Romana British change their material culture, change their burial practices, change the kinds of houses they live in, the kind of pottery they use, and they begin to look like people who are also coming from across the sea. And all these people together create a kind of new society and a new material culture. And we call it Anglo-Saxon because by the later 6th century, there are lots of people who are thinking that they're English. But genetically, these people aren't English. They've just changed their culture. And the the rulers of the what they would have been called, I guess, Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, did they also fit this model? Were they also a kind of hybrid of the immigrants and the native people? It's difficult to say. I mean, what there are there are kingdoms that develop in parts of England where we think there isn't that much migration, Germanic migration. So these people must have had very deep roots within Britain itself. But it's very hard in the in the fifth century. So in the century after the fall of Rome and Britain, it's very difficult to see elites in this period. So what it looks like from the archaeology is that you have a kind of ranked society where you have all households have about the same amount, but different people within the household might have more power or might have more. And it's only as you move through the fifth century and then into the sixth century that you start seeing elites develop. And so these elites who come to become kings come out of this period where there are elites. So it's hard really to know exactly who they are. We know who they thought they were. They thought that they were Angles or Saxons or Jutes. But that's a kind of story that they told themselves that was probably developing in the early 6th century. We don't know who they were in the 5th century. You made a point earlier that it's quite likely a lot of the people who came over from Germany didn't come so much as conquerors, but just came to settle. But how much evidence or understanding do we have of how well they got on with the people already living in Britain? Was there a lot of conflict or was it relatively peaceful? Well, it's it's very difficult to know an answer to that question because um, it's hard to know what living peacefully together or not living peacefully together would look like in the archaeological record. So, I mean, I think the answer is we don't know. I mean, there are, there are some indications that the population drops quite substantially between the late 4th century and the late 5th century. So there may be quite a lot of room in Britain. Um, and it's very hard to see elites in this period as well. So the kinds of things like the the massive estates that must have surrounded the villas in the 4th century also don't seem to be there anymore. So there does seem to be room for newcomers, whether they're coming from some other place in Britain or coming from across the sea to settle. But it's, it's hard to tell if they all got along or not. You mentioned that the migrants, there was quite a lot of women and it wasn't just all male. Do we know much more about the profile of the people coming in? Do we know kind of what from what economic groups they came from, how old they would have been? Well, all we know about generally is how old they were when they died in the cemeteries that they were buried in. And so that doesn't tell us how old they were when they came over. But looking at the isotopic evidence, there is evidence for women who were born in a foreign place who die young, who have children who were born in the place where the women and the children died. So it does look like there are women of childbearing age coming over or maybe a little bit younger and then having native born children. So, it, you know, everybody's young in this period, basically. I mean, the people don't live very long and so there aren't that many old people. So it's a kind of young society that's moving anyway. 
do we know after after migrants had come to England or Britain, did they continue to communicate with their homelands? Would they have, say, traded with them? Would they have gone backwards sometimes? There is evidence that there is some circular migration going on and so that people who maybe um, return again and again to their home communities. And so you find what we think of as Anglo-Saxon style material culture um, in coastal regions along the channel, which suggests that there's quite a a bit of toing and froing. And you can find it also in um, places like Flanders. So it does seem like there are people moving back and forth. From the other perspective, do you know much about whether many native Britons were emigrating, going out of Britain and moving to other European countries? Well, some of them seem to be going to Brittany. So there is migration there as well. People are moving a lot in a lot of different ways. The problem, I think, for those of us who work in the early medieval period is that our written sources tell us all the migration is coming from continental Europe into England. But we know from archaeology and we also know from Ogham inscriptions that there's a lot of movement going the other way. And so, for example, there's a lot of people from Ireland uh, coming into um, Britain at this time as well. What do you think the really important things are that we need to find out still about this subject? And is there any particular evidence that we'd need to find to help further our understanding? Well, if I if I were the queen of the world, I know what I would do. I would spend a lot of money on a high-precision radiocarbon dating program to really pin down people in the 5th century and figure out who they were, what they were buried with, where they were, where their settlement sites were. So that's one thing I would do. And the other thing is I would do a lot more isotopic studies, both on their dietary isotopes that help us understand what they ate and how their diets were changing, and these isotopes that help us figure out if people are migrating or not. A few cemeteries have been done, but there's a need for a lot more work. And I think if both of these things were done, I think we would know a lot more. That was Professor Robin Fleming. And as well as her lecture, I should also mention that a major conference is taking place today and tomorrow, also at the British Academy. It's entitled Aliens, Foreigners and Strangers in Medieval England, and you can find out more about it at the Academy's website, britac.ac.uk. And just before we go, I thought I would read out some messages that have been sent in to us recently at podcast at historyextra.com. First, we heard from Barry, who writes... I'm an American who moves every few years for work and has listened to your podcasts for years while running. Your commentaries on the Wars of the Roses, World War II and the Victorian era, as well as the inevitable, but always enjoyable, tidbits on the Tudors, have kept me company on the streets of New York City, past the monuments of Washington DC, through the dusty back alleys of Brazzaville, Congo, and now the paths along the Thames. I particularly enjoy the new pieces in which historians interview other historians. Now that we live in London, I have subscribed to the magazine and I eagerly look forward to receiving my first edition. Well, thanks for that, Barry. And we were also contacted by Stephen Baldwin from the Isle of Wight, but who now lives in Milwaukee. Stephen writes, Just to express my deep appreciation to you all for the brilliant podcasts that you produce. I listen to them many times over. What a treasure trove of information and quality broadcasting. One of my favourites was the Wolfson interview with Meridale and Broodbank. How interesting it is to hear how historians work. Can we have more? As a result of your podcast, I've also bought several of the books mentioned, of which otherwise I would not have been aware. 
Well, thank you for your kind words, Stephen, and we do hope to be continuing our relationship with the Wolfson Prize, so do listen out for that. And if anyone has missed the interview with Catherine Meridale and the Cyprian Broodbank that Stephen was referring to, it was released on the 3rd of June last year and is still available from all the usual places. OK, that's pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking history with a Nobel Prize-winning physicist and one of Britain's best-loved actors. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>